This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Are you stressed? Most people I know are. I am. That's why I'm glad to have as a guest today, Glenn Murphy. Glenn is my martial arts teacher in a fairly esoteric form called Sistema, which is a Russian martial art that was only introduced to the West in the last 20 years. And I have to tell you, it's phenomenal. Not only in terms of combat and conditioning, but because it is sort of like meditation in real life. So when you sit down and meditate, you can achieve states of calmness and control. But when you are in a board meeting and someone's screaming at you, or when you're in a, a family fight, and you go and sit down and sit in lotus position and close your eyes and count your breaths, that's not very useful or productive in the moment. And what Sistema has taught me is how to control myself while I'm in extremely stressful situations, how I can calm myself internally. And my teacher, Glenn Murphy, uh, is not only a martial arts master and practitioner, he's also a scientist and a science writer. One of his books um, is called Why is Snot Green? He's got another book, uh, Things That Scare Your Pants Off. He's got something like 26 or 27 science books, most of them um, dedicated to explaining scientific concepts to young people. So he's a perfect person to come and help us understand stress today. Before we get to the interview, a quick shout out of thanks to those of you who've supported the podcast over the past week with donations, by sharing, and by leaving reviews on iTunes. All that stuff helps tremendously, and I am very, very grateful. And with that, without further ado, Glenn Murphy, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So today we're going to be talking about stress. Yeah. And before we get into the topic, let's kind of recap your story, how you got into this, why folks should listen to you. Okay. Um, so I started basically in science, uh, hard science and science communication for the most part. I had my undergrad in genetics and immunology and then studied science communication at um, the Imperial College of Science and Technology in London and then worked for Nature for a little while, writing news and features. And, uh, and eventually at the uh, Science Museum and started writing books and I've authored over like, 26 titles um, in popular science, largely for kind of kids and teenagers trying to get them uh, used to the idea of uh, what science can do for them and kind of uh, an evidence-based approach to life. Um, but along the way also, I've been a very, very keen martial artist ever since I was pretty much seven years old. And I've studied a wide range of different disciplines, um, including 14 years of Aikido. I lived in Japan for two years, studied there. Um, and then when I returned to London to do the masters, I met somebody who was uh, teaching this Russian martial arts survival health system called Sistema. And it basically started out the uh, um, uh, pretty much now a lifelong commitment to understanding what those approaches can do for you um, in terms of long-term health um, resilience and your ability to kind of be your own little healthcare system and healthcare provider for the most part. So um, through that, I've kind of now melded my two kind of backgrounds and disciplines and I explain principles that are gained from these fairly um, older teachings but some of them a little bit more modern based in neuroscience and um, that was done in the post-war uh, era in the um, former Soviet Union and then explaining basically how these principles work in terms of fairly simple science um, to, to lay people and uh, anybody who's interested in becoming healthier and uh, more efficient and less uh, stressed out in their daily lives. 
Right. So, so just in, in terms of full disclosure, uh, I'm one of your students in Systema. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I, I experience both the, the benefits and the, and the pains of the treatment <laughs> on, a, uh, on a weekly basis. And one of the things that I find valuable is that, you know, when we're talking about stress and when we talk about martial arts, there's an awful lot of dogma. Yeah. There's an awful lot of mythology and, and people who are into sort of the, the stress management world very often are kind of anti-science. Like there's there's a there's a way of uh, of approaching it that says that well science simply can't uh, access these these higher truths whether they're sort of cosmic and spiritual yeah um, but the, but the way you filter all of the the systema stuff yeah. um, and and all of the martial arts and all of your understanding of stress through a very rigorous science based approach yeah absolutely it's um it shouldn't be one or the other right um, science has given us so many things in terms of medicine in terms of antibiotics in terms of ways of understanding the brain and our bodies and how they work that's not to say that traditional teachings and other forms of knowledge should be ignored um, but I think if you discount the science and you just kind of make everything woo-woo and talk about just feeling your chakras and in that case you're going to deal with your stress and everything that's going on in your life then you're discounting a huge body of knowledge and and also there's a certain credibility I think that even though people trust and uh, distrust science in some arenas um, there's a certain credibility that something that's backed up with uh, evidence-based research on top of being something that's worked for thousands of years for traditional peoples so yeah i think there's a definite benefit to fusing those two things and kind of saying okay um it seems to work what do we know about how it works and in some instances you know the the mechanisms aren't altogether proven yet um by rigorous research in science. A lot of approaches, things that work through yoga, things that work through other traditional approaches, haven't been studied in enough depth to figure out what, what's exactly going on in the brain, what kind of plasticity are we seeing when somebody um, trains meditation for 50 years. You know, Usually these kinds of studies are pretty small and they're pretty limited in the university departments with university students as their test subjects, and they, don't really, um, they haven't had the capacity to study these things. But I think increasingly now we're getting the tools with um, functional MRI scanners and things like that to study questions that before we had to basically just have a thought experiment. It's like, oh, this seems to work. Why do we think it's working? And now we have some of the tools to analyze why it's working as well at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll get, we'll get into why neuroscience and martial arts are relevant to yep. stress, but let's, let's start by framing the issue. Why, why is stress a problem? Why are we even spending time talking about it? Well, stress, it's, it's like the huge unspoken factor uh, that governs most kind of um, health and disease problems, certainly in the developed world, um, but also in increasingly in the developing world also. Um, everybody kind of understands that stress is a factor, and a lot of the time you'll, people will develop conditions, be they kind of uh, coronary or circulatory or uh, anxiety-based type conditions or depression, and they'll go to the doctor, and the doctor will say, well, it's stress, you need to try to have less stress <laughs> and just remove yourself from, from the cause. And there's this idea that almost that stress is like an environmental pollutant, like air pollution or noise pollution or anything like that. And, and if only you can remove yourself from the stress, then you'll be healthy. But if you live in, live in an environment where this thing called stress exists, then over time it will have some sort of um, non-specific effect on you and it will uh, and we know that stress has a huge effect on accelerating the progression of cancer and the development of Alzheimer's uh, uh, at the far end of the, of the scale and but at the near end of course kind of just small scale of gastrointestinal issues sleep disorders all kinds of things like that are attributed to stress we know this um, but how we should deal with this is not altogether um, 
agreed upon a lot of the time it's it's kind of like well if you can then just retreat from the stress takes take a couple of weeks off if you have a breather then maybe you'll be okay when you come back in practice that doesn't seem to work because the stress is there waiting for you or well let's treat this and we can talk about this a little bit later on that um how a lot of the conventional treatments at the moment don't seem to be working in the long term. Now we can treat your response to stress with drugs and then we'll see whether that helps you out in the long term. For some people it does, for a great many people it doesn't. Um, But the problem really isn't with the fact that we have stress-related diseases and we're having trouble running from them. The problem is that we frame the problem the wrong way. Stress isn't in and of itself a bad thing. Stress can drive innovation. It can drive a sense of urgency in your work. It can drive high performance. And some people are kind of self-described stress bunnies and claim that they function best under stress and all that kind of thing. And, And that's all well and good. But the truth of the matter is stress itself isn't the problem. Your problem is your stress response. And that's very individual and it's very trainable. So whether or not you work in a high stress environment, the thing that you can control is your own body's response to stress. And it's your body's response to stress that causes long-term disease through a wide variety of mechanisms. So that's kind of what we really look at in these um, in these approaches that we're taking. Mm-hmm. So let's let's maybe define what we're talking about because there's, yeah. you know, there, like there's physiological types of stress, mm-hmm. right? Sort of danger, you know, when we were attacked by saber-toothed tigers or extreme right. cold or extreme heat, yeah. um, things like that. But we, we're really talking mostly about non-physiological causes of, of stress, are we? <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing in that all stress becomes physiological at some point. Um, whether it's perceived in the brain as a threat. So you gave the example of being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. That's that's not physiological stress until um, your body manifests some kind of uh, stress response, right? Um, if you were a, a lion tamer, for example, or you work with saber-toothed, I don't know, nobody has because we don't share space with them. Um, but let's just say tra- chased by a tiger instead. Um, if you were more used to tiger and tigers and their capabilities, you might still be terrified you might still want to run um, but you might not experience the same degree of physiological stress as somebody who's never seen one before and one leaps out of a bush Um, in terms of physiological stress in terms of heat and cold and things like that yeah there are direct mechanisms that work on the body and that start uh, to drive up your heart rate or make you shiver and do things and so the, the the term is thrown around in a lot of different ways but ultimately stress only really becomes something that can damage the body when it becomes physiological you can't just feel mental stress and then have it have an effect on your body it's your perception of stress and the, and the changes that that makes in the body largely via the limbic system um, and the sympathetic nervous system that make stress a reality for your body and something that's going to happen if stress were only mental if it were only like a form of psychological stress that didn't affect the body it wouldn't be a problem at all it's the fact that it affects your body that, that makes it what we call stress. Okay, so what happens when we're under stress, when we, when we perceive stress and our bodies go into this limbic response? Um, so the first thing is there's some kind of trigger. Um, there's a stress, there's something that we perceive as a stress trigger. And that can be extreme heat, it could be pain, it can be uh, something that you're terrified of. And obviously that response can vary. Um, somebody with, an, with a phobia or a conditioned response might experience stress when they're, um, you know, when they see a mouse <laughs> or something, or they're standing on a, a ledge which is less than four feet off the ground. Uh, somebody who's trained on a high wire or a tightrope in the circus wouldn't experience stress even when walking across that rope when it's 50 feet up in the air. So that response to that trigger varies initially anyway. Um, I think the, the view most people seem to have of stress is that it's almost like this automatic response, that you have a stress trigger, trigger something that just really drives you crazy, something that makes you go nuts, whether it's uh, 
somebody cutting you up at a, a junction when you're in your car or a, an angry email from a boss or a person who just eats in that way that you just can't stand when you look at them they're chewing with their mouth open and, and that thing just gets on your nerves it's like a stress trigger and it drives you up and then there's some sort of automatic response and people usually cite the fight or flight response and the, and the action of adrenaline in the response that your body has but in reality there's a whole bunch of things that happen in between the stress trigger and the release of stress hormones and then your body's response via the hormones in reality what happens is after you perceive the trigger and how you perceive that is based on your past experience and how your brain's conditioned to uh, perceive things your body has some physiological changes usually your breathing is interrupted in some way either stops completely or it becomes more shallow or it becomes more rapid um, but that's one of the first things that happens and then there's physical tension the level of tonus in your muscles um, around your body or in specific isolated parts of the body typically in the stomach and in and around the neck and shoulders will change uh, typically increase and be held for a part, part of time and your body perceives those two changes as a as a sign that you're actually under stress and then there's a feedback mechanism wherein if you maintain that altered breathing pattern or tension pattern for a length of time then stress hormones may or might may not be released that gets cycled back into the perception of stress and then your body basically says oh okay well now i'm breathing really fast now i'm very very tense i must be scared and your body your brain perceives that and then drives the cycle round and round again so it's a cycle rather than just one stress trigger and then something that happens in your body it's not just a process it's a cycle and the route to kind of understanding your stress response or interrupting it really lies in understanding all of the steps in that cycle and then interrupting it on purpose you have to derail that system short circuit it if you will so that it doesn't go round and round and build from mild worry to full-on anxiety and panic attacks mm. when you say it's automatic i think there's something comforting for people like you know my my body has this wisdom and the, yeah. the stress response is obviously um, evolutionarily positive mm -hmm. and it sounds like you're saying it's not uh, it's not. I mean, obviously, those triggers are there for a reason. We have a, and actually very, very few kind of fears or triggers that we perceive are inborn. I wrote a book several years ago called um, Stuff That Scares Your Pants Off, <laughs> mostly for kids and teenagers. And it's basically on the nature of fears and phobias and where they come from. Um, and in the process of researching that book, I found out that there are very, very few innate fears. There's not many things that we're born with. And there's things that we're born wary of. For example, we're born wary of the movement and shape of something that looks like a snake but we're not born with a terror of snakes. Basically, we're, we're born to notice that movement that that's imprinted within us and then we'll look at it and then we basically at a very young age we look to our parents or somebody around us and how they react to that snake and that forms from that day onwards our response to snakes if your mother screams and runs away and tries to hit it with a stick then you get this idea that snakes are terrifying things and, you know, and that's what you should do if you see that shape but if not then you'll just see it you'll definitely notice a snake or something that moves like a snake um, that way but you won't necessarily jump or move and if your mother you know or father behaves in a different way, then you might end up becoming a herpetologist and being completely fine with boa constrictors slithering around your neck for your whole life, right? Um, and spiders, insects, small scuttling insects, same kind of thing. We kind of, we have an innate uh, sense of their motion and, and that's probably evolutionary over, evolutionarily over a lot of time, just kind of a suspicion of things that scuttle and bite and sting. Um, but we need not be terrified of them and most, many of us aren't, some of us are. Um, so a phobia in some sense is kind of like a, a stress trigger or a stress response gone mad it's, it's it's basically wrapped around within itself to the point where your perception of the stress trigger is way out of proportion to what it actually does to you so coming back to your original point these kind of fears and or 
triggers are there for a reason. They've protected us over time. Uh, the ability to notice that it's not a good idea to dance around on the edge of a high ledge, on the edge of a skyscraper, um, or you know, or see a large animal, um, just something that's bigger than us that has claws, basically, we're going to be stimulated by that into some sort of response. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't treat that as information as humans and then use it and to, to make a conscious decision of how we're going to deal with that, that stressor. And traditionally, in the traditional kind of warrior cultures and in the military still now, they do something akin to stress inoculation. They'll basically give small increasing stimuli of these types, um, whether it's kind of like gunfire near you while you're crawling over an assault course or something like that, um, or you know something like wrestling with people to, to kind of attenuate you to the fear that comes with physical contact or losing your balance or sudden loud noises, things like that. And then over time, your stress triggers kind of change. So they have the same fears in a sense, but they don't act on them in the same way. So those biological responses do serve a purpose. Nobody wants to be fearless. The, the goal of this kind of training is not to make you like a robot. Um, my instructor likes to say only psychopaths and dead people are fearless, right? <laughs> the goal shouldn't be fearless. The goal is to should be to understand your fears and your stress triggers and then use that as information. And then you don't kind of peak and trough in terms of your nervous system response quite so frequently or so widely throughout the day um, or in response to the same kind of stimuli. And it makes you more functional as a person. Gotcha. So we're, we're living in a culture of sort of rampant stress and people um, don't necessarily have the tools to understand it or deal with it. What's, what are the costs to, to individuals? Well, the costs are immense. I mean, as we kind of talked about earlier on, it's, it's well noted and well researched that um, stress is a factor in a massive range of um, diseases. Um, judging, it has a, a direct effect on the maturation of immune cells in the thymus. This is one of the big discoveries of the last um, 20, 30 years in immunology. And that means that stress has a direct effect on your ability to fight off infectious disease, um, for T cells to fight off the progression of cancer, um, all kinds of different conditions which are mediated by your immune response. And so a stress uh, can drive up autoimmune diseases like asthma and eczema and all kinds of things. So this kind of amorphous description of like, oh yeah, that thing's caused by stress. You should cut down on your stress. Otherwise that stress-related disease is going to come up. Now we have mechanisms which kind of point out exactly how that's, that's happening. Um, but over and above that, um, there's a principle called the allostatic load, which basically states that in our daily lives, as we kind of perceive stressors and in the absence of real tigers chasing us around and having to fight off rival tribes and things, our brains are now seeking things to be perceived as threats to our survival, um, existential threats that really aren't. Right? And the guy that cuts you up in his car isn't an existential threat, um, but you can't, your brain kind of hates him in the same way. It, see, it sees him as a way of, as a threat to your safety and, and that's something that needs to be dealt with and with the same kind of response, right? Um, or somebody who's arguing with you verbally um, is just kind of shouting around over a job or over something that's going on or a work colleague. We, our brains perceive that in the absence of real conflicts and real fights and real wars and things like that. Our brains perceive that as a threat. So threats to our status and our ego are now being perceived as threats to our actual lives by our brain in the absence of real stresses. So that drives up this constant kind of series of triggers throughout the day where all day long, anything and anything could be pissing us off or making us terrified pretty much or making us fired up. In the process of adjusting to that, our bodies have kind of a, a continuous stress response. It's an extended one. We don't just kind of get fired up in the way that an animal would when it's running from something and then relax when the danger has gone away. Uh, we 
hold on to the stress response and it becomes chronic. It's, it's your breathing is altered over time. Your level of muscle tension is altered over time. Stress hormones circulate through the body all the way throughout the day. And you never really get a chance to kind of calm down. And in the process of trying to adapt to that new physiological state, um, your body is basically kind of broken down over time. Your ability to kind of, and there's lots of um, research that kind of questions what the mechanism for that is some people have said that it's the production of free radicals all kinds of other stuff um, that work with it and there's definitely a, an interplay with diet as well and how in all of how this happens um, but the basic idea is that while your body tries to adjust to the stress load that you feel like you're experiencing there's a cost there's an energy cost in attempting to adapt to what you view as a stressor within every day. And in the process of that, that's what really drives the disease, that your body is fighting so hard to try and keep itself calm in this heightened state um, that it's basically using energy that it could be using for repair or immune defense or all kinds of other things. And so over time, you basically get broken, broken, broken down. Mm -hmm. So it's like that um, the, the stress response is, de is dealing with an immediate emergency and it's using uh, sort of future capital. Right. Th things that things that aren't necessary in the moment. You don't need to digest your food yeah. this moment if you're under if you're actually being chased by a tiger. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that's fairly unique to humans. And it's a sad product of the fact that we have higher cognition and the ability to think and worry about things in a way that most other animals don't. And um, one of my instructors like to use the example of of a cat or a tiger. Right. Um, for 90 percent of the day, they sleep. They're very lazy. They lie around. Uh, they're doing very, very little. They have almost no muscle tone. <laughs> they're just kind of bags of fluff lying around on the ground. But if something happens, um, if there's prey that they need to chase or somebody scares it or something like that. So in the case of a cat, that's just because most people are more familiar with small cats than big ones. I also work with big cats. So I'm always using that example. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, say a house cat, right? You see it lying on the sofa and it's just lying around like a bag of rags. And then somebody makes a loud noise or there's a thunderclap outside that cat will straight away, it just goes into full tension. It will move like lightning and its heart rate will fire up in exactly the same way that humans do. Its sympathetic nervous system is blasting into full effect and it's experiencing stress hormones, all kinds of things. And it will run to the other room. It will scamper, it will go to another place and then it will sit down and its heart will go very, very fast. And then eventually in not too long a time that will slow down. And then when the cat perceives that the stimulus is gone, that there's no more threat, then in a ridiculously short period of time, it will be lying in a bag of rags, completely relaxed again, completely oblivious to the thing that scared it in the first place. It might be a little bit wary, it has kind of a memory, um, but unless it happens again and again and again in the manner of Pavlov conditioning with dogs or something like that, um, it's not going to be scared just for the sake of being scared. Now, humans don't do that. We get terrified. Our sympathetic nervous system gets fired up, and then we have difficulty returning back to that base state, um, which is kind of the build rebuild and kind of refresh kind of um state where our where um blood flow is redirected back to the digestive organs where um cellular repair starts to starts to happen all these kinds of things the emergency state is maintained for way too long it might not be at the absolutely top level of 100 percent emergency but you're kind of keeping your body on condition yellow all the time and that's not allowing you to completely repair and um, rebuild and do the things that your body needs to do in order to kind of get itself back into shape again so it's it's a function of our ability to remember things that 
gives us the capacity to have a chronic stress response, a stress response that's stretched out way longer, way after the, the actual stimulus is gone. And that's really the thing that we're going to be working with. You're going to experience stress in a high emergency situation. I'm not saying um, that it's a good thing if I can teach you in a car crash to feel no, no stress or no fear whatsoever. If you're in a car crash, you need to get out of that car quickly. You might need to pull your family out. Of, and you're going to experience a raised heart rate and adrenaline and all of those things. Um, but you don't need to be walking around every day like you're half in a car crash. Make sense? Uh -huh. So that's kind of what we're really looking at. Okay. So we talked about the, the diseases over time. Um, what, what is the experience of stress? So it's, so it's so natural. It's so normal. People in the workplace like brag about how much stress they're under. It's almost a, you know, it's a, a mark of honor to, to be constantly harassed and worried. But what, so what's help, help us understand experientially what it's like to live under stress so that maybe people who have been doing it for decades and didn't realize it can, can realize that there's another way. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good question. It's um, often one of the things that I see with people when I work for a long time is they're not aware of just how far removed from full relaxation and health they've become. Um, as you say, it's become a bit of a badge of honor with some people. Like, I'm a stress bunny. I can deal with anything. Um, and people don't understand that they are dealing with it, but their bodies are dealing with it in a way that's destructive um, to themselves. They're, they're getting on with things that they're, they're enduring stress, if you will, rather than kind of thriving in the presence of it. And what you typically see is um, an altered postural configuration. Um, and this has been talked about a, a lot. If anybody's, uh, any of your listeners have been into kind of Feldenkrais and also in um, many branches of yoga, people will talk about this, that stress manifests, um, as a physical pattern within your body. So if you if you truly have to flinch, if a loud sound goes off or a bang or something like that, or somebody storms into the room and fires a shotgun, right? Um, then what typically happens to absolutely everybody in the room, including secret service agents and people who have been trained to do this, is the first thing they do is that their necks tense up and turtle inwards into the body, into the chest cavity. Their shoulders lift up to kind of protect the neck. Um, they'll hunch over or they'll arch their back depending on their individual response. And they'll kind of fetalize a little bit and kind of pull their shoulders towards their hips with their stomach muscles. Now, if that happens all at once, you can feel the difference between relaxed and ridiculously tense and locked in this fetalized position right away. Um, but what happens when you're in this kind of chronic, insidious stress response state is that you start the day feeling fairly healthy. Maybe you get up, you eat your breakfast, you do a little workout, um, and then you get into the office and you open the email and you see the first couple of emails and in creeps just a tiny bit of tension in your neck and your neck kind of turtles inwards just a little bit down towards your chest. Over time throughout the day, your posture becomes more hunched as your stomach clenches up and gets tighter. And basically what you end up doing is a long-term slow flinch. And then over time, as your body conforms to that pattern, it feels uncomfortable to be any other way. It's difficult for you to maintain an upright, relaxed posture. It feels like that's standing in a military fashion was, is difficult for your shoulders and other things. And we do all these kinds of things like yoga and corrective kind of postural exercises to try and force our bodies to retake the right configuration. But at the end of the day, we can't because the stress is forcing, is pulling our bodies out of position. The mental stress is manifesting as a long-term flinch in the body, and then we maintain a poor posture. Now, the problem is that there's a feedback loop within the body. When your body feels you in that posture, it drives you back and it increases your mental stress and stress hormones. So it's kind of um, an ever-decreasing circle of health. So one of the things that I see is 
postural compromisation, and that drives in on itself and makes people kind of feel terrible. Um, chronic tension in the throat and in the chest muscles, the front of the pectoral muscles shorten a lot and kind of bring the shoulders together, means that you simply can't breathe this deeply. So you're, you're breathing in a very, very shallow way and you're not oxygenating as fully as you could be throughout the day. And you might feel like that's okay and you can get along with it, but you really can't over a period of hours or weeks or months, people breathing shallow the whole time. When you're in this state, when you have this much tension and your breathing is that poor due to kind of chronic stress or a chronic stress response rather over time, even when you go to sleep, you're not fully relaxed. There's, I've seen people when they sleep, they have tension in their, between their shoulder blades and their lower back and then they wake up and their neck is sore and like, I just don't get it. I need to get one of those posturopedic mattresses or get rid of my pillow or do something else. It doesn't matter. You can change your bed however you want. So yeah, there's ways that you can make yourself in even worse shape by sleeping very, very poorly, that's true. But even if you do all of those things, you can still pull yourself out of shape because you're tense while you sleep. So a lot of the people that come in don't realize that's happening to them in the course of a day. They don't understand the small kind of insidious, slow boiling pot, the frog in the slow boiling pot kind of metaphor, right? If you bring the temperature up very, very slowly, the frog doesn't realize it's in the pot being boiled. But if you just dropped it into a pot of boiling water, it would jump straight out. And I like to kind of imagine that if you could just take people, make them completely relaxed, and then put some kind of device on their heads, um, on their brains, which simulates exactly what they feel like around 3 p.m. in an average work day, and then just switch it on all at once, they'd be like, Ugh! and they would feel just feel <laughs> terrible. And they would feel the contrast between how they're feeling right now when they're lying on the beach or they've been through a stress-proofing course or something, and how they generally feel at 3 p.m. in a given day when they're at work. If you could feel that difference more easily, then you would never want to be like that again. And you would understand that it's not a healthy way to be, that it's driving disease, that it's driving all kinds of other things. And, and this is to mention nothing of the reactions that you have to your colleagues and your family and your partners. You know, you come home and you're snapping at them. There's, there's all kinds of deleterious effects to general life um, in having this long response, but people just don't realize they're in it. They don't realize what how relaxed they could be, how kind of happy and carefree they could be in the presence of stress, even in the presence of, you know, deadlines and other things, you can still do it. It's possible, but people don't think it is. Right. Well, you, know, you talk about sort of the, the vicious cycle within the body. There's also a vicious cycle within an organization. If everybody's stressed, you're more likely to get those horrible emails. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it does become what you find is that as you take this kind of work on and you become more relaxed yourself, there's kind of like a a radiation effect you, you relax people around you whereas the opposite is also true if you're very very tight and your shoulders are tight and your neck is tight and you breathe shallow if you hang out with somebody like that then you start to mirror their behavior their posture their breathing you don't realize you're doing it it's very very subconscious it's it's body language it's posture it's things that we read and then you end up with a whole team of people who are breathing shallow being tense in a, a basically chronically active, activated stress response and you have a whole company which are doing that right so yeah the company can companies organizations can do things to encourage healthy behaviors and kind of break that down a lot of what we do with diet and other kind of schemes um like dietary recommendations and uh, exercise recommendations for employees and things like that in the workplace they will help um, because they basically allow the person to take a time out if you if you go on a healthier diet and i know howard you're a big advocate of the whole foods plant-based diet Often when people switch to that, I think just the removal of the enormous peaks and troughs of refined sugars and processed foods or the, the huge kind of um, blood pressure differentials that can form when people are eating a lot of meat and fat and things like that. The difference between how they feel in their gut and the amount of inflammation and tension in their stomach 
can be huge. And they're like, wow, I had no idea my gut could feel this way. So what diet does for the gut and your feeling of overall health through digestion, this does for the nervous system. It's a similar kind of thing. If you can, if you can show somebody what the, how calm and relaxed and functional and alert to your nervous system can be without having to be on high alert, um, then it basically becomes kind of like a, it's, it's an easy sell. People want it after that. Yeah. They well, it's funny because you mentioned uh, and you did a demo here. We're, we're uh, in the studio together of the, the fetalizing that comes from this um, very, very slow flinch. Yeah. I just saw a, a story in The Onion mm. saying that more, more and more workers are choosing the uh, fetal position desk <laughs> <laughs> instead of the standing desk. And, That's great. And, 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 of course, like most of the, the satire in The Onion, it's funny because it's sad. Yeah, funny because it's wholly true. <laughs> Um, yeah, that you know, I've I've been an organization consultant for many years, yeah. and and just and seeing the level of dispiritedness mm-hmm. and and despair, and some of it might be you know um, related to people not connecting with the corporate mission, mm-hmm. but most of it, in my experience, is just people being unhappy being there because because of the stresses because other people are unhappy because no one's feeling great these are yeah. not these are not like you know temples of joy yeah um and and i think we attribute a lot of it to innate factors in the organization when yeah. i think listening to you it seems like a lot of it could be mediated by people who become um stress smart yeah absolutely it's um you're basically on upward spiral or a downward spiral with this and you and you tend to affect the people around you with whatever state that you're in psychological or physical and i think there's a general tendency to attribute too much to the higher brain in our society we've learned so much about how we think and reason and logic and use logic and and there's there's certainly been been a great great effect to kind of looking at ways in which we can plan and strategize and reason our way out of things and work together in teams in a better way. And there's, there's better or worse ways of working in teams. There's better or ways of worse ways of being a manager or somebody who's being managed and receiving feedback and giving feedback and all of those things, specifically talking about the workplace here. Um, but ultimately, we're also animals that function in this workplace and we feed off of signals that we don't like to admit that we have. If the boss comes in and his shoulders are kind of raised up, to us, it's like a, a silverback gorilla who's kind of posturing and, you know, just kind of trying to occupy space and splay out. And um, our limbic systems, you know, perceive that as a threat and it drives up stress. So it doesn't matter if the boss is trying a whole bunch of other different strategies and techniques it doesn't matter if you've read a whole bunch of books about how to receive feedback well if you see that signal you will start to panic a little bit right and that's kind of what happens so and so it's i mean a lot's been said about especially with speech and nonverbal communication right that that's the the amount of i think the i can't remember the exact percentages or something like that but in terms of communication the actual content of the words that come out represents about 20 percent of the impact of any of the way that we receive communication now tone is about another 30 percent and then the other 50 percent is non-verbal physical signals we're getting from the person right so i can say i love you howie right <laughs> straight to your face but if i say i love you howie with my body all tensed up and my neck shuddering and my my eyes wide looking at you it's, it's an altogether a different experience from your end yeah i feel like running away yeah. let, let the record <laughs> let the record show <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't not think that means what you think it means <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah so it's um it's a silly example but it's you know I think we underestimate the roles of these ancient parts of our brains that have been around for way, 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 way longer than the higher brains have evolved comparatively recently. And especially the kind of 
cultural norms and things that we've learned that aren't even innate, you know? And we think that maybe if we read a bunch of books and we understand how people interact, that we can think our way out of these problems. We could if our brains were computers and our bodies are robots. That's not the case. Um, the analogy we like to use on the stress-proof um, courses and retreats is that it's more like that your brain is kind of a rider sitting on top of a huge, angry, terrified elephant that has its own problems. And this has been um, discussed in like various kind of uh, different books on neuroscience. I think there was one called The, uh, the Happiness Hypothesis by a guy called, I think, uh, Jonathan Chait, I want to say. But I have to mm -hmm. double check that. Um, but he likes to use that analogy also. It's a really good one. And he just talks about it in terms of the neuroscience. Um, but it's true across the board. Basically, if you don't acknowledge you have an elephant, if you think that your mind is in complete control of your body and you can think your way out of being afraid or being angry, you're in for kind of a, a rude awakening because you know you might decide that you want to go over here and you want to go and talk to the boss, but if the elephant's afraid of him, it will just <laughs> trample all over everything and it's not going to respond that way. And you know, in our martial arts classes, this is a big part of what we do. Rather than kind of teach individual um, responses to certain types of attacks, we basically just kind of give you the stimulus of an attack. And then the work that we actually do is not learning new techniques and ideas and trying to remember them. It's feeling how your body responds to that and then training your body to relax and respond in a more natural way and just solve the problem. So you kind of have to acknowledge there is an elephant first, and then you have to come up with techniques that allow you to tame the elephant. And only then, when you have some kind of synchronicity between yourself and the elephant, can you steer. And steering is really the best we can ever hope for. We're never going to get complete 100% control over that elephant. And in this analogy, the elephant is the limbic system and the body and its own uh, kind of mechanisms that work from the midbrain down, pretty much, in which the heart forebrain is almost entirely absent right that's so interesting because if you if we watch like a coca-cola commercial yeah we understand that it's coca-cola mm -hmm. selling us coca-cola and we can yeah. say well that's not true or they're yeah. or they're hyping it but in our response to stress it's our our brains our big brains are doing the advertising for our big brains yeah yeah, right? yeah. so uh -huh. they're they're completely completely untrustworthy and, yeah and so therefore we don't even realize that the that there's an elephant we think that the little yeah. rider can can do it all yeah absolutely yeah so that's it maybe it's a good segue into um stress management the way it's typically thought of and done in our society um when i in 1990 i became a massage therapist and i didn't yeah. know anything about business and i printed out a card that said you know plainsboro stress management hmm. company and i'd walk around with my massage chair and i and i said i can help you reduce your stress and of yeah. course i was an idiot in, in in many respects um there you know there certainly is something very relaxing about massage but but yeah. in in general, when we talk about stress management, um, what, what's what's missing or what's wrong or what's misguided about those approaches? Um, well, if you look at the typical approaches, just think from the point of view of it as yourself. If you've had kind of like a, an anxiety attack or a panic attack or something, maybe you've been at the same firm for a lot of years and then all of a sudden you just feel like you can't handle it when you go in one day and you're having some sort of anxiety attack and somebody says, look, you really need to go to the doctor. You need to get this sorted out. What does the doctor typically recommend? I mean, what would be the first course of action? What do you think? Um, just tell you to, to relax. Yeah, tell right. you to relax, which is fine until you have to go back yeah. to work. It's like, eh, take a couple of days off maybe. Maybe yeah. you can't take a couple of days off, right? right. You have well, to feed your family. Maybe you have to run a company, manage some people. You might not have that luxury, so now what? Right. Well, there's some samples in their, in their uh, cabinet, in their locked cabinet of some drugs that will help take the edge off. Possibly, yeah. Okay. So most conventional approaches will go towards some sort of combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and um, anti-anxiety medications or antidepressants depending on the state that your stress 
response takes, right? If you get if your adjutant's level dips too low, and we can talk about this later, then you'll dip into kind of like a permanent, uh, semi-permanent type of depression. If it gets too high, then you get towards uh, sustained anxiety and anxiety attacks pretty much, and that's mm -hmm. depending on your individual thresholds. So usually what um, conventional medicine prescribes is some form of talk therapy, kind of trying to reframe the problem with your higher brain, which we've already discussed, doesn't have much to do with the body and its own response to stress, um, and drugs which alter your physiological response in some way um, to perceive stresses. Now, the problem is a lot of the research shows that if you just use one of those things, if you only use, um, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, and you try and talk through the problems and talk to somebody about why it's happening and reframe the issue and do little exercises every day to think about it in a different way, in the absence of drugs, it has almost no effect. It's almost like a placebo. Um, in the presence of drugs, it works, um, but a lot of people don't respond well to the drugs over time. They have side effects. Um, they can make you feel listless and tired and unhealthy in other ways. So you haven't really solved the problem. You swapped one health problem for another, you know, um, pretty much. So those approaches can be helpful for some people. And please don't um, make this. Uh, don't think that I'm trying to say you know nobody should ever take antidepressant drugs or anti-anxiety medications, things like that. I understand there are conditions that have gone so far that sometimes people need medications at the very least to try and get to back to some sort of mid-state from which they might be able to work themselves off of the medication and make it work. But I don't think anybody um, in the medical establishment or anybody um, genuinely wants to be on those medications for the rest of their life and dependent on that to manage their own reactions to the world and their health. Um, so the goal should always be to come off of them, but people very rarely do, or if they do, they just have a relapse of whatever stress response they had. So the three general responses to anxiety attacks, panic, uh, and you know, stress-related disease are take time off, can't always do that, take some drugs, not practical for the long term, and not effective for everybody, it's worth adding as well. Some people just don't respond to it at all. Um, or cognitive behavioral therapy, which in and of itself doesn't work. You have to combine it with other things, so it's, it's arguable how well that works on its right. own. Now, I would think that cognitive behavioral therapy would work based on your discussion of, say, snakes. Mm -hmm. the, the, the snake is a, a, sign, a call for attention, yeah. but then we associate it with panic, yeah. with fear. So couldn't you just train your brain to, go to, to rethink the snake? You can, and in that limited example, cognitive behavioral therapy can work really well. So in the treatment of phobias or individual stimuli, if it's heights or snakes or spiders um, or open spaces, for example, or closed spaces for claustrophobics, you can, with a good cognitive behavioral therapist, you might be able to be attenuated to that specific stimulus and then work your way around it to basically uncouple your perception of that mm -hmm. as, a, as an existential threat. Um, from your body's response to it. In that limited range, cognitive behavioral therapy can work. Uh, unfortunately, stress is a general thing. The, the number of things that can stress you out when you're in the workplace or that can happen with your family, maybe you have a bereavement, you have lots of pressure, things that you have to do. You can't do cognitive behavioral therapy for each and every instance of something that might cause you stress in your life. Does that make sense? Yeah. It would take too long to talk through all those things individually and make it work. And and actually, some of the best cognitive behavioral therapists, I think, like to combine their approach with some sort of somatic approach, something that you're doing to the body to uncouple things and have some sort of lasting lengthy approach at the same time. So I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying that in isolation, it's very, very limited in its application. Um, so what we have to do is look at something. We have to 
address the elephant. We have to <laughs> we have to recognize that the elephant exists and we have to work on the elephant first and then we can work on the rider and how the rider perceives things. But the elephant is all important. Okay. So um, a lot of people don't though don't use a medical model for stress management. There's a huge industries out there. Mm-hmm. So people will say, well, you can meditate. Yeah. Uh, you can do yoga, mm-hmm. um, get massages. Yeah. Um, are those sufficient for people? They, uh, they can be effective. Um, and they're certainly better than not doing anything. And they're, and they're certainly better than, um, some of the conventional, more conventional approaches, which have, um, aren't demonstrably effective within a wide range of people. So the benefit of meditation is that over time you can change your stress threshold, right? If you, if you're an avid meditator, if you practice uh, daily all of the time, um, and other kinds of times of mindfulness practice too, will really, really help. Um, then you can start to see your mind's responses to things and you can alter your stress perception. So that's one good thing that comes from meditation. And if you keep at it for many, many years and you're very, very uh, diligent in your practice, it can have a huge difference on stress perception and it can work really, really well. But again, if you meet a new stressor um, or if you're in a genuine panic situation, you can't just stop and meditate, right? You can't remove yourself from that, from the the thing that's going on at work. You can't just say, okay, guys, uh, I understand that we have to wrap this up within five minutes and, um, you know, Tokyo need to know which things to buy. Um, but I'm just going to need to take a five minute time out so I can meditate in the next room. Right? <laughs> we don't have the luxury of doing that a lot of the time. Or if you're, you know, a mother working at home trying to you know, juggle three kids and <laughs> screaming it in different directions and trying to juggle a job at the same time. Again, you can't just take time out and say, all right, kids, everybody go to a different room. I'm going to sit and meditate and see what I do. So meditation is a good. Yeah. I remember, to- I remember the look I got from my wife when I came home from work one day and she was frazzled and I suggested that she could have used some of that time to meditate. <laughs> that's a great way of approaching yeah that always works so well with a spouse like you need to find more time to relax you know yeah. they always respond so well to that i find <laughs> yeah but no it's um but it's i think it's a good reinforcement of um it's a good threshold practice as we like to call it it, it will over time it will change your stress threshold a little bit and what does that mean specifically change your stress threshold um, well, if you think about it kind of like a graph it, and you think about your level of agitation in the day, whether you'll, you'll kind of go up and down throughout the day in a natural kind of cycle. And some of it's circadian. It just changes. You know, when you're asleep, generally your stress response is at its lowest. Your level of sympathetic nervous system activation is at its lowest point, And your body is mostly rebuilding um, itself. Like your brain switches itself off. You go into a sleep mode almost entirely so that the brain can rewire itself a little bit so that digestion can take precedence and your body can basically do a little inventory and figure out what it needs to do for the next day, right? If you've been working out all day long, it might reallocate some more resources to your muscles or to um, your um, like a cardiac volume, all kinds of things, changes happen overnight while you're asleep. Now, when you wake up, there's kind of a gradual kind of increase um, in your level of nervous system activation. If you're you know, awakened by a bugle at five in the morning, that might be quite immediate. <laughs> you'll jump out of bed or somebody throws water over you, you'll see it straight away. Most people kind of stagger like zombies from the bed into the, you know, get themselves a cup of coffee. The coffee artificially peaks their sympathetic nervous system um, level a little bit, and then they feel a little bit more alive and into the world a little bit more, and then you'll kind of wander into the office. Some people don't fully wake up or start doing anything useful until about 10, 10 a.m., whether or not they're in the office and talking to people or not, or whatever happens. Um, but basically that will go up and then uh, another period during the day, typically uh, mid-morning, it will dip 
and then it will come back up again. And then after you eat a meal at lunchtime, if you're into the three meals a day type thing, about an hour after that, your body receives a signal. Uh, your body basically looks for a signal to say, right, what are we doing? Are we running from something? Are we exerting effort? Do we need to keep this level of agitation? Or can I kind of half switch you off and digest some stuff right now, right? <laughs> Which is why most people experience that slump in the middle of the afternoon where you're, oh, and you can't get anything useful done um, because your body's going into that parasympathetic mode right in the middle of the day when you're expected to do things right um, whereas traditionally you know we probably would have hunted something for a while traditionally or gathered some food you know some plants and farmed for a while and then had a little siesta right ideally that would be the right way to go maybe the spanish have it right that way my parents live in spain they're 74 they're relentlessly healthy and i think because they siesta every day so that's a good part of it but anyway so it, the point is that your level of agitation or agitants as it's been termed goes up and down naturally throughout the day provided that it doesn't hit a certain upper threshold you'll never go into full panic and anxiety provided that it doesn't dip below a certain level of excitement or agitation you'll never slip into kind of listlessness and depression it kind of like a sine wave it just kind of wobbles backwards and forwards throughout the day and that's perfectly natural um but as if you ex constantly experience stimuli which drive you up maybe you you know you, you're uh you're trying to cope with like a two-year-old that's not sleeping and it screams at you at a certain point during the day or something like that, or there's, you have a massive argument over potty training, for example, in my wife's example, um, then you might get very, very agitated and anxious throughout the middle of the day. And if your agitation level goes above your threshold, then you might be like, I just can't handle this. I can't handle it, kid. I can't talk to you anymore. Um, mm -hmm. I can't talk to you about potty training. Somebody take this kid off of me. I can't do it. Or if you're a stockbroker and something's happening, you have to make a series of quick trades and your heart rate's pulsing and you can't kind of go in crazy. So, 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 and you go so over the, a certain level. So over a certain level, is you're, you're basically, you're being hijacked by, by some... You will be, yeah, over a certain level. And this typically is the level over which you'll be in the full adrenal response. So this kind of idea that you go into full fight or flight mode whenever you get stressed, it's not true. First, your nervous system and your breathing and your tonus changes. If that gets past a certain level, then adrenaline will be released and, and you'll go into kind of like a more chemical, chemically imbalanced stress state pretty much, right? And that's harder to come down from. Now, the benefit of meditation is that over practice, it allows you to push up that threshold over which you'll feel that worry and pan panic and anxiety. So that's a really good thing. But it doesn't change your individual response in the day of how far or how how far up or how low your level of agitation goes. So you still have very little control over that in the moment, but over time with um, many years of practice, it can raise the thresholds over which you'll feel anxiety and panic. So serial meditators get into kind of panic states less often than most people, but they still get into, they still be angry throughout the day, right? They'll have lapses and then they'll beat themselves up about it. I'm supposed to be a meditator. Why did I get angry and shout at my wife, you know? <laughs> and that's why, because in the moment, you might not go into full anxiety and panic, but you'll have some sort of stress response and you'll be feeling fear and anger and all of those things. I've got yeah. Okay, yeah. great. So what about uh, yoga? Um, yeah, yoga likewise can be a very, very beneficial long-term practice. And the nice thing about yoga is that it, it does actually address the elephant to some extent, right? It, it, it works to remove long-term physical artificial tension within your body, right? So if you're having postural issues caused by stress, if your body's getting pulled out of shape um, by your psychological response to your environment over time, yoga can put you back in touch with your body. Your, um, it increases your level of proprioception, your sensory awareness of how much tension you have in different muscles in the body. And that in itself can be a valuable thing. It can teach you kind of some of the early onset indicators of how stress is happening. And at the very least, maybe you'll keep yourself in a better shape and you'll be less likely to hold that shape for a longer time. 
Um, so it can be very, very beneficial. But again, it, it takes more than just an hour class twice a week. Um, to see the real benefits of that, you have to practice it daily so that you start the day every single day with an awareness practice for your body, which resets your muscle tone, which resets your perception of what's going on in your body. And then you have to do that day in, day out, and never skip a day pretty much in order to kind of get that kind of benefit. And some people practice that way. They have a daily yoga practice. And those are the people that normally get the most benefit out of it. Most of the people, you know, we have busy lives. We'll go a couple of times a week and we'll skip a class if we're particularly stressed, right? <laughs> which is exactly when we need it more than anything else. Um, so <laughs> yoga and massage too, which is another, you know, going for regular massages can be very, very beneficial because it can help remove that stress from your body. Um, or at least the physical manifesta manifestation of the stress within your musculoskeletal system. And that has a kind of a, a, a feedback effect on your nervous system. At least you're not getting up to such a chronic level of tension that your body thinks you're in that, that way all the time. So that's good. It will work on the body. Um, but typically, unless you get into a very, very deep practice in yoga, you're not really working as deeply with breathing. You're not working as deeply with... Um, your response to the world. I mean, some people embrace yoga as part of a wider philosophy um, mm -hmm. and you can get enormous benefit that way. But if you're just talking about it as a, as a solution to stress and just doing it on its own, it's often not enough in and of itself. And again, you get that thing where I'm like, well, my body's in fairly good shape, but I'm still getting nervous and anxious and driven up and down by things. And it's because you haven't made that connection between your limbic system and your body, right? So yoga will remove the long-term physical effects of stress. Um, but again, under, under real pressure, you might start to deform your body and be in a bad position. And it might not be until your next yoga class or session that you actually realize you've been holding that position. So what we really need is something akin to kind of like an immediate treatment, but also um, some kind of inoculation or preemptive kind of uh, practice for stress kind of thing. And, and meditation is kind of a preemptive thing. It kind of, it, it preps you a little bit over time, but it's not a very good reactive practice, right? It doesn't help you in the moment. Yoga's a, again, a very good kind of preemptive thing. It will kind of help you to work things. And over time, it will help you to work out some manifestations of stress, but again, it won't help you precisely in the moment. Massage, the same kind of thing. So it's, all of these things can be helpful in and of themselves, but it's hard to dedicate enough time to doing all of them all at once, right? So for my mind, it's like, I've found through martial arts and through this neurophysiology research um, in the former Soviet Union, predominantly that they've used to train, you know, Olympic Soviet athletes and uh, like soldiers and special ops people and things like that. They've benefited from this shorthand, very, very quick and efficient method mm -hmm. for just understanding your body and getting many, many, many of the benefits that you would from long-term meditation, yoga practice, massage, all at once in a very short period of every day. So it's, all, it's about efficiency, really. It's not that other things can't work. It's how efficient is your method and how likely are you to keep it, keep it up in this, especially if you're in a high-stress environment. Well, that reminds me a little bit of when I was in high school. I uh, took Latin for three years. Yeah. And um, somebody asked me, like, why was I taking Latin? And uh, the, the only, you know, the, the reason I thought was, well, I, I'll do better on the English SAT test because of all the, the cognate <laughs> words that I'll recognize. And he was like, why don't you just study the SAT vocabulary words? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's definite, there's, uh, you know, huge benefits to meditation. There's yeah. huge benefits to yoga. Yeah. But if we're just talking about stress proofing, yeah. there, there is a shorthand. It has been discovered and scientifically <clears throat> validated and developed. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I can say from personal experience that, uh, that I, I, you know, I can attest to how quickly it can change physiology, can change things in my behavior and in my responses that, uh, that years of the thinking stuff didn't really do. So can you describe what, what it is? What is? 
Okay, so the method is basically grounded largely in kind of uh, somatic resilience training. Um, so there's kind of, first of all, we have to kind of teach you the link between your limbic brain and the, and the rest of your body and how you kind of respond to things. And, and that means you have to, first of all, build up the sensory mechanism. So it's, it, we have to kind of learn to detect kind of the early onset indicators of the stress response. You have to become extraordinarily sensitive to changes in breathing patterns both in depth and duration and intensity, um, extraordinarily sensitive to um, changes in tension within the body, imbalances in tension between the front and the back or the left and the right side of the body. So we do a series of, of exercises which basically allow you to sense that on a much, much, much deeper level. Um, and it almost becomes, breathing becomes almost like a diagnostic tool, almost like an MRI scanner or something, which allows you to access your nervous system in a way that it's impossible to do if you don't understand how to use your breathing in that very, very specific way. Um, so that's one part of it. Um, another part of it then is introducing mild stresses um, in many forms. We don't scare people and throw tarantulas into the room and things like that, right? Um, but we'll basically use breath suspension or different types of exercise or movement, um, which introduce kind of like a mild stress response into the body. And then we work actively to decrease that in the moment, immediately. You feel the stress, you feel your blood pressure going up, you feel your body tensing up, and then you work actively to remove that. So you practice de-stressing yourself in the moment. Um, and you can you become confident in your ability to control your blood pressure and your ability to control um, your heart rate. And a lot of people will be like, you can't control your breathing and your heart rate, uh, your heart rate and your blood pressure. You absolutely can. You don't need drugs to do mm -hmm. it, um, provided that you haven't got some major physical um, problem with blood vessels and circulation. You can get absolute control over your um, your blood pressure. Actually, one of my instructors, Mikhail Vyabko, in a demonstration that I was in in 2009, had two med medical doctors holding onto his pulse at his wrist and his carotid artery. And one of the doctors pronounced him medically dead in the left side of his body, while the other was saying he's got a very strong pulse rate in the side of his body. So he has so much control, he can alter his pulse rate to the extent that it's barely perceptible, his pulse, in one side versus the other. Now, that's, that's an extreme example, but and that takes a few more years of training, but you don't need to be able to do that to get control of your heart rate when it starts to race out of control or to get control of your blood pressure um, in, the, mm -hmm. in and off the moment. So that's the first part of it. And then we do a series of exercises that basically retrain your brain a little bit to, to ignore harmless stresses and to stop associating them with an existential threat. And so this is kind of more akin to what's attempted a lot of the times in cognitive behavioral therapy, but we do it in combination with these somatic exercises and the awareness of the body and the awareness of the breath. And it becomes much, much more powerful, much, much more efficient. And you can build those kind of neural pathways of awareness and activity much, much, much quicker. So, so it sounds like it's much more generalizable rather than just dealing with my phobia of open spaces or my fear of meeting strangers, that because I now have um, fingers on, literally on the pulse yeah. of my own stress response and yeah. I can feel the breathing and I can feel the, the, the beginnings yeah. of a stress response, then I don't have to uh, um, rely on just you know, individual things that I know in advance that I'm going to be stressed by. Exactly. That I, I, can, I, can, I can identify, okay, here, look, here comes a stressor. I'm getting an email from this person that I really like, but suddenly I had this thought that they're upset with me yeah. <laughs> that I could never have predicted. But because I'm sensitive to these, cha these internal changes, I can take action right away. Exactly. Yeah, precisely. It's just much more generalizable. It's, um, it's a wide spectrum response to a wide spectrum problem, which is your reactivity to stuff that you don't like, basically, <laughs> in a daily basis. And then finally, we'll do exercises that 
um, build long-term resilience. Um, the ability, and, and, and this is to do with, again, with thresholds of um, anxiety and depression. And um, so we'll basically give you the ability to peak and trough to a much more limited extent throughout the day. You'll still experience highs and lows of excitement and, um, and uh, kind of a recovery throughout the day, but your highs and lows will be much, much more manageable and you'll feel just a lot more kind of uh, in the moment. And, and this is one of the goals of kind of flow state training and athletics and things like that. So we'll basically teach you how to neurologically stay in the flow state so that you're better able to deal with whatever comes along after that. So that's a longer term practice. The first kind of three parts of it, the, the immediate awareness and the ability to kind of just reset your body every day or several times a day to prevent the effects of chronic long-term stress. We'll teach you that right away and you'll feel those effects immediately. The resilience practice is something you have to go away and you do over time. And, and then that basically reiterates what's being done with the first part and it becomes more powerful over time. All right. So it sounds like these techniques have been uh, tried and tested and validated among Olympic athletes and warriors, yeah. which, is, which are two really interesting metaphors for people at work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, they're both people who function in an extraordinarily high stress environment and they have to do so with great precision and they have to do so repeatedly day in day out or month in month out right you can't just train for one uh, olympic race and then then it's done and then that's your life's work and you're out but then you train for months and months and months at a very very high level there'll be a whole series of races and and tournaments or lifting competitions or whatever it is that you're training before you even get the opportunity to be in the Olympics and then you have to train like crazy in the run-up to the Olympics for many years and you have to do so without injuring yourself and you have to do so um, without um, it causing disease through overtraining and all kinds of other things so so this kind of training is ideal for people who have no choice but to function in a high stress environment all the time but it's relentlessly useful also for people who are in a high stress environment some of the time Right? Um, mm -hmm. You think if it's powerful enough to help like a, an Olympic gymnast mm -hmm. cope with the stress of thousands, tens of thousands of people watching him in the moment while he attempts to pull off a perfect iron cross routine or something like that, or it's, or it's good enough for a, you know, a Navy SEAL or a Soviet Special Forces mm -hmm. uh, soldier or something to stay calm in the moment when he's being attacked on all sides by people he doesn't know and try and differentiate friendly people from non-friendly people and make actual cognitive decisions in the face of things that would drive most people into a small fetal position. <laughs> um, if it's good enough for them, then just think how how powerful it is. It's, it's almost overreach. It's almost like more than you need to deal with daily stresses. But having that kind of power and that kind of uh, control over your own nervous system is just a phenomenally liberating and empowering thing to have. When you, once you realize you have that level of control, it's, it's huge and it has massive knock-on effects for your relationships, for your um, functionality at work, all kinds of things. Right. Well, and uh, a friend of mine, Peter Bregman, is an um, organization consultant and he works with CEOs. Yeah. And for years he worked uh, at a strategic level. Mm. And he discovered that it was almost never, the problem was almost never the strategy. Yeah. The problem was almost always the courage of the CEO yeah. to feel their feelings, to be vulnerable, yeah. to not react mm -hmm. angrily or uh, defensively yeah. and that this you know what you're talking about is really like a superpower for, for people who want to be successful in, in the business world and in life yeah it absolutely is and it, it ties into a large extent with the idea of ego too the, the more that you practice the more you realize that our sense of ourselves of who we think we are 
I, who I think I am, is tied up with your emotions and your reaction to things. And, and that comes out in the phrase, I'm a real stress bunny, right? <laughs> you think that rea you react to certain things in certain ways all the time. But when you realize that that's simply not true, that's just a pattern of behavior that you have, and that's emotions that kind of run through your body in a physiological way, and that you have the choice of reacting that way or not, then it forces you to redefine who you are and who you think you are. And then when people criticize you or give you feedback or something happens, because you're less likely to defend your ego or your idea of yourself, and your body's not defending itself in that kind of same way, then you're free to actually consider other people's ideas. You're free to admit fallibility to your subordinates and say, yeah, our project was a terrible idea. Let's, let's do a post-mortem and figure out how we move on and do something a bit more useful. It, it frees you up in all kinds of ways. Um, so yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a good observation. So for people who don't want to move to uh, Chapel Hill and train martial arts with you, are there ways for people to, um, to learn your uh, stress inoculation techniques? Yeah, so I offer workshops, um, short kind of four-hour workshops, kind of countrywide, um, by, um, by a special arrangement where I can kind of travel and, um, and teach this to smallish groups um, in, a for, in a controlled setting. Um, so that's one option. Um, another one is that we've started offering extended retreats, and these are really good um, for people who have trouble extricating themselves from the environment in which they're gonna, they're gonna learn very, very well. So if I come to your workplace, for example, or to your town and do like a four hour workshop with you and a bunch of people, it might be you take four hours out of your day and you do this and you will certainly learn a great deal. And depending on your level of dedication, you might then go away afterwards and practice it for the next few days and then get enormous benefit out of it. And certainly people that do the four hour workshops have seen huge improvement and it's been great. Um, but what we've started to introduce now is the idea of a three day retreat where basically um, we'll take us a, a group into the mountains and there's no cell signals, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no temptations to be able to um, slip back into the things that you perceive as stresses in the first place. And you'll just spend a good, solid three-day period talking through these ideas, practicing these techniques, practicing these principles. And by the end of it, you're so immersed in the feeling and you have such a revolutionarily different perception of your body and your nervous system that it's now something just that you do, right? So at the end of that three days, you feel completely different about how you handle stress. And then even if you'll run back into a world of high stress and things afterwards, you'll just start to react in a different way anyway. Um, you've, you've had a head start in the practice. It's an enormous crash course, but in a very, very relaxed environment. So the first one of these we're running um, in April uh, in North Carolina, and that's gonna be in the mountains near Asheville, North Carolina, at, a Canu at Canuga Lake Retreat and Conference Center. So tell us a little bit more about the retreat. Okay, so it's, um, it's held at Canuga Lake, um, and it's a, a retreat center where typically they have a lot of meditation or prayer retreats, things like that. So it's a beautiful, beautiful space. It's on about 1,400 acres um, in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Um, and we have a full three days, um, and people will be staying in kind of the historic cottages that are there, which were kind of built in the 1920s, which are quite lovely. So it's not like a, a high-end Ritz-Carlton kind of experience. It's more mm. kind of like a go-back-to-your-roots Davy Crockett kind of... <laughs> you know, not quite that rustic, but fairly rustic. There's no, there's no Wi-Fi in it. So, um, and it'll be a lot of fun. And, and there's a lot of space within the schedule, basically, for kind of reflection and figuring stuff out. So the format will be... There'll be half an hour to an hour of kind of um, 
theory sessions um, where I'll be talking about the theory, explaining basically why we're doing what we're doing. I don't want to ask people to do these strange exercises and then not have a concept of why it is we're asking them to do it. So we give them the theory first, and then we'll do an hour of practice um, between breath work, body work, movement, awareness practices, um, stress inoculation, resilience training, all of those kinds of things. Uh, and then it's typically a period after that of about an hour where we have reflections, people share what it is that they got from it, and we can kind of check understanding before we move on. And then there'll be spaces throughout the day where you can also just go off on your own and uh, go for a hike around the lake or go boating or just kind of sit and do very, very little and just kind of stare into the mountains and, um, and just completely wind down and enjoy the experience of how your body feels and how awareness you are, how aware you are in this environment as well. So it's, it will be, there's a lot to cover. Um, but it will be spaced out across the three days in such a way that it doesn't feel like um, a crush, obviously, because that would defeat the point of a stress-proofing retreat <laughs> somewhat. Right, and I so appreciate that because I've been to a lot of workshops where pe the leaders feel like they've got to give me my money's worth, yeah. like an over-program, and so we get you know 20-minute bio breaks twice a day and yeah. half an hour for lunch. And the truth is the workshops where I've really developed and gotten the most, there has been space yeah. for, for one concept to work its way in, for me to meet the other participants and connect yeah. with them so i'm glad to hear that you're uh, you're giving you're, you're trusting the process and not just trying to cram everything you know into three days yeah absolutely this this needs time to percolate this kind of work so you have to give people the space to sit with it and practice with it so mm -hmm. okay and how can people find out more about that yeah if they go to our website which is ncsystema.com and if specifically they type in ncsystema.com slash retreat that will have the specifics on that. Um, if you go to the general site, it'll give you information about the classes and all kinds of other things. But yeah, NC Systema. So that's system with an A on the end of it, and then dot com, and then slash retreat. It'll have all the information on there. Or they can email me at glenn at ncsystema.com. So it's glenn with two N's, NC Systema, system with an A on the end, dot com. And then I can send you a brochure with the full pricing and then and the scheduling and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Great. And if, if folks can't make the April one, but they're still interested, is there a way for them to stay in touch with you? They can. Yeah, they can email me and I can put them on the waiting list for um, the second that we're hoping to put on uh, in the autumn, we haven't got the venue confirmed for that one yet, but we're looking at um, a few different places. Uh, we'll probably do another one in North Carolina. Carolina mountains um, before the year's out, but we're looking to expand and do some in the Southwest and some other regions later on. So they can be waitlisted basically for future events. So I can put them on uh, our newsletter and we can keep you in touch that way. Awesome. Well, so I'm, I'm feeling less stressed from our conversation. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and um, it's, it's really interesting work and especially, you know, all this stuff that's, that was kind of embargoed um, behind the Iron Curtain yeah. that, uh, that, that ran in parallel with, what, with our understanding in the West and in some ways confirms it, in some ways adds to it, and in some ways uh, contradicts some of our ho uh, holy cows about physiology and stress. Yeah. And um, as, as, as we mentioned at the beginning when you bring a science-based approach you're you're able to uh to help us and you know and help me specifically um with uh, with a tremendous uh wealth of evidence-based validated knowledge so for so i, wa I want to thank you publicly and personally for uh, for really helping me with my own health and my own uh, mental physiological psychological state and uh, i urge people to uh, go to ncsystema.com slash retreat check it out uh, um, this is life-changing work. So, Glenn Murphy, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you very much.